Welcome to God Pod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Good morning, and or good afternoon, whatever time you happen to be listening to this God Pod number 16. And we have with us um, not only Mike, as usual. As, as usual. Yes. Welcome, Mike. <laughs> Try and mask the sense of disappointment. <laughs> um, and we don't have with us Graham, who's on a plane as we speak. So we hope he will get back safely and you'll hear him soon. But we do have with us a special guest, which is Bishop Tom Wright, Bishop of Durham and well-known New Testament scholar. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. We've been saving up all our difficult questions for, <laughs> yeah, for years and years. So... Um, we're hoping to keep you here for quite a long time. This is why I've got two cups of coffee instead of just one. <laughs> <laughs> but we thought um, what we would, where we would like to start would be with your, uh, the work you've been doing on the Gnostic Gospels. Can you tell us a bit about why you've chosen to work on this at this time and, and what we need to know about the Gnostic Gospels? And what they are. What they are indeed. Uh, it's a good question. The um, thing that prompted this was that at Easter this last year, Easter 06, um, I had just got off a plane back from Australia and was greeted with the question, what do you think about the Gospel of Judas? And I was very fuzzy and jet-lagged, and I thought, oh, not another new Gospel, don't tell me, because we've had the Gospel of Thomas, and we've had the Gospel of Mary, and the Gospel of Philip, and it all goes back particularly to a set of finds just after the war in Egypt, when somebody dug up a cache of um, old books, codices, which were buried outside a monastery in jars and things, and uh, these turned out to be the uh, books not only about Jesus but about a variety of life and faith issues which seem to have been hidden there by some people probably in the 3rd century AD were not absolutely sure of the precise date but these included some books which had been mentioned by some of the early Christian teachers the so-called early fathers of the 2nd and 3rd century people like Irenaeus and Tertullian and so on who had written quite angrily sometimes about there are some books out there which say this and this and this about Jesus but we know that that's wrong because we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and that's where you have to go. So we knew that there was that controversy in the early church. We didn't actually know very much from the writers themselves of what they were saying and now since the late 1940s well the books were finally um, carefully preserved, edited and translated through the 1950s we've got a better sense of who these people were and what they were saying. And I haven't actually done very much with that material in my own scholarly work because I've tended to focus on the Jewish context of earliest Christianity rather than the semi-Gentile context of of 2nd and 3rd century Christianity. But this Gospel of Judas, um, which was just published uh, by National Geographic, actually, at Easter this last year, really got me going because the people who'd edited it, particularly two or three of the Americans who were working on it, were saying in a quite strident way, this stuff really tells us what we actually should be believing about Jesus and about earliest Christianity rather than all that rubbishy stuff in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) And this forms part of what I've seen in America quite often, which I call um, a new myth of Christian origins, which is very prevalent. I've lectured in and preached in churches in America where people have been taught this 
for the whole of the last generation that Jesus was just a good Jew who would never have dreamt of dying for the sins of the world. He certainly didn't rise from the dead, certainly didn't think of himself the son of God. He just started a kind of a flaky social protest movement, etc. And then it was Paul, followed by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who turned him into this divine savior figure, dying a sacrificial death and the, uh, inventing the idea of resurrection, and thereby, and this is the twist, thereby turning this wonderfully flaky, socially subversive early Christianity into a kind of a conformist, um, socially acceptable cult, which was then well on its way to the Constantinian settlement um, in the early 4th century when Constantine <clears throat> converted and made the empire Christian, and people have said, well, there you are, that's the ultimate betrayal of the gospel. Mm. It should be socially subversive and, and doing all this. Um, and instead, the New Testament writers were quietly shifting it into a mode where it could become socially acceptable, and we are now recovering the really exciting early thing. And frankly, this is a load of rubbish mm. and needs to be unmasked as such in terms not only of the second century, but in terms of the contemporary, not least North American world, which is actually in love with this phenomenon called Gnosticism and uh, is actually trying to reinvent a sort of Christianity to fit with this this ancient Gnosticism. So the little book that I've written, Judas and the Gospel of Jesus, it is only less than 100 pages. I thought um, it was only, only 399. Uh, well, 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 only three. I don't <laughs> know what it costs, actually. Um, I really can't remember. It doesn't say on the back cover of this, but never mind. It's, it's um, one, of, one of the cheaper ones that you'll find Absolutely. out there, published by SPCK. Um, we'll, uh, I'm looking at both the second century context when it looks as though this Gospel of Judas was written and trying to see what was going on there, but also looking at today's context and asking why are people so fixated on this mm. stuff yes. and what is an appropriate historically rooted and theologically articulate response to it so that's why I've got into it uh, and this word Gnostic um, I mean Gnostic Gospels um, why are they called that? What does it mean? Yes, for a lot of people, it simply sends you back to Michael Flanders, you know, another Gnostic, <laughs> all of that. Um, and, and I think that's about as much as some people know about it. The word Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T, and the other things, Gnosticism and so on, come from uh, a Greek word which means to know, something that you know. And uh, the worldview goes like this. Point number one, the world we live in of space, time, time and matter is basically a bad place and it was made by a bad or incompetent or malevolent God, and we are trapped within this bad world, and we, or at least some of us, are actually sparks of light, or somewhere within our uh, nasty mortal body, there is a spark of light which has got trapped there, and which is longing to escape and go off into the world of pure spirit, where it'll be free and happy and uh, whole again, um, set free from this nasty mortal world, and that the way to get that freedom is through acquiring this knowledge, this gnosis, which is a knowledge about the true God, who is the high God, who didn't really have anything much to do with the making of the world, because that was a silly, secondary, shabby thing to do, and this true God, who um, really doesn't like materiality at all, physicality, wants to get in touch with this divinity which is already inside you, and so the knowledge is the knowledge of God, the knowledge of how this wicked world was made, Made, that it was a shabby bad place and the knowledge of who you really are and this is the key thing fitting in exactly with so many elements in contemporary culture where in half the movies that are made it's all about discovering who I really am rather than the Christian message which is discovering that the God who made the world is the true God and he loves you to bits 
and wants to rescue you, not from materiality, but from the corruption of that materiality, which we call rebellion or idolatry or sin or wickedness. And so gnosis is, is the way of labeling this worldview. Now, I have to say very quickly that it's a very multifaceted worldview, and scholars who've worked on the second and third century say there are almost as many varieties of Gnosticism as there are texts which articulate it. But somewhere in the middle, those probably are the slightly sort more, of... Actually. Uh, pro- probably slightly <laughs> more, Probably slightly more, because the worldviews don't have to be particularly consistent coherent, with them, yeah. or co- yeah. co- coherent. But those are the main things. It's a deeply dualistic worldview. And By the, which you mean? Well, that, um, that people look at the world and they say that the world of space, time, and matter is essentially bad, and that the thing to do is to escape it into a world of pure spirit. So that the escapism is both now and in the future. Now I can escape into a private spirituality which doesn't relate to my body, to the world around, and then eventually means that I can leave this wicked world and leave the shabby old body behind and go off into an ultimate eternal bliss which will be a, a world of pure spirit. So bodily resurrection is absolutely out. You do not want... Why would I want this Because bodies are nasty. Because bodies are nasty. We're better off with that. Exactly. exactly. It's, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I remember 30 years ago, which was before anybody knew what a Gnostic gospel was, pretty much, except for the cut scholars, I guess, um, hearing um, Billy Graham say, uh, inside your body... Uh, there is an eternal bit called the soul, and that's what the Bible says. And I remember thinking, mm, I wonder why the Bible says that. Uh, but Gnosticism seems to have been around even before the current flurry of flakiness. Oh, yes, certainly. And people have done whole studies on this, um, particularly looking at the rise of the 18th century Enlightenment. And by calling itself Enlightenment, those philosophers in the 18th century and coming through to the early 19th were actually saying, we are the ones who know, we are the ones who've discovered, we are the ones who've discovered that everything that's gone before is sort of tawdry and silly, and we now have this new knowledge which enables us either to escape the world into a private religion, which means we don't have to bother about public life because, you know, we're just doing our religious thing, and that's how half the Western world has lived, or to say that now that we've discovered the world is a messy old place, um, we've got carte blanche to go and create empires and to exploit it and to dig for gold and who cares, which is exactly what you find with ancient Gnosticism, that some of the ancient Gnostics were ascetics, that is to say the body is bad so you've got to deny it everything that it wants to do, and others who are libertines, the body is irrelevant, it's just a piece of cheap trash so you can do with it whatever you like. And we can see that writ large in European and American culture over Mm -hmm. the last 200 years. And the fact that most people don't know that this has got a name um, merely shows that it's at the worldview level where it's the spectacles that people look through that they're so used to looking through they've forgotten they even exist. So it's been around a long time. And the worrying thing from that point of view is that a great many devout Christians, and you cite Billy Graham, I mean, uh, Graham wouldn't say that the soul is divine and simply needs to be set free to be itself. He would say the soul needs saving, needs rescuing. And that's the the key difference. But there's an awful lot of Christians who, um, both in the evangelical tradition and the charismatic tradition and elsewhere, who really do believe something that looks a lot more like Gnosticism. So that, for instance, many Christians who believe that the point of the bodily resurrection was simply to show that there is a life after death, to show that God can do great miracles and intervene if he wants to, and therefore, fine, we now have this escapist theology, which, rather than saying that the point of the resurrection is this is the launching pad of God's new creation. And I find when I talk about new creation as a major theme in New Testament and Christian theology and use that as a way into addressing contemporary issues, I get real hostility, um, not only from kind of left-wing 
um, Gnostics, but from many right-wing Christians for whom this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And, and how do we get uh, that balance right, Tom? Because there are strands in, in Christian theology that require you to sit light to this world. Um, the only way to get it right is to go back to Jesus again and again and to the Jesus we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And let's be quite clear about this political subversive thing that in the second and third century, the Christians who are being thrown to the lions and sawn in two and burnt at the stake and goodness knows what are not the ones who are reading Thomas and Judas and mm. Philip and Mary. And indeed, some of today's Gnostic scholars will freely admit this, that if you're agnostic, what's the fuss about saying... Why um, would you die for it? Yeah. Why, would you die for, why would you die for it? And actually, um, you know, who cares if you offer a pinch of incense at Caesar's yeah. altar or whatever? Because that's just a material and thing. And it's something so, you do with your body. It's something you do with your if body. If you don't so do it with the inner spark, it doesn't I, I, exactly, corrupt you. Exactly, it doesn't corrupt you. <laughs> the people who are being martyred are the ones who are reading Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. They are the really subversive ones in the second and third century and so that that's a that's a modern lie which needs to be named and shamed but when we go back to the stories in the gospels i've done a lot of work recently with with the johannine trial narrative john 18 and 19 uh, jesus before pilate that is john's interpretation of the meaning of the cross the cross for john is the thing which happens at the end of that conversation. And that conversation is about power, about how power happens on earth, how power gets corrupted on earth, and about Jesus bearing witness to the truth in the middle of a world of corrupt power that doesn't know what truth is anymore. And, I mean, John is so extraordinary. The more you go at him, it's just depth upon depth upon Mm -hmm. depth. And I grieve when I see... Christians for whom the meaning of John's passion narrative is um, Jesus saying it is accomplished, therefore that means our sins have been dealt with, therefore end of story, missing out the very careful build-up which John has done for two chapters, which tells you that this gospel is about um, Jesus' kingdom being for this world. Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world. In the old translation, it often said, my kingdom is not of this world. Mm-hmm. And so people assumed that that was agnostic thing. Therefore, it's a purely spiritual, heavenly kingdom. We leave this world and we go after Jesus' kingdom, which is somewhere else. But Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And the point is that the kingdom of God which comes to us is not characterized by this presently rebellious world, but it is for this world. It is to transform this world and that the death and resurrection of Jesus are to be seen as the Gospels do see them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, in terms of God dealing with the evil which has corrupted this world in order to launch new creation from the middle of the old creation. And if we go back and reread the gospel accounts for all their worth, we will have a sheet anchor which will enable us to get through. The trouble is, of course, that for generations, Christians have read those gospels in truncated little ways, 10 verses here, 15 Uh verses there, but have heard them within a worldview which the stories themselves would actually deconstruct. Do I feel another book coming on? About what? (laughs) About the trial narrative in John. Oh, well, um, not another book, no, but I've been... There's a lecture which I've done in various places on... um, Postmodernity and empire, because it, it's very interesting. The postmodernist who denies that there is such a thing as truth, it's all relative, it's just my truth and your truth, etc., is absolutely on all fours with Pontius Pilate, saying, What is truth? Mm. And, tr- and, and, and it is in the interests of empire to deny that there is such a thing as truth, because you then cut off the possibility of critique. 
Um, and of course, I, I've been exploring that in the light of John. And of course, what happens is, having done that, he then goes and condemns an innocent man to death mm, mm. because you have nothing to stop. Yeah. You know, yes, what, what exactly. is good for the empire, what is expedient, exactly. is all that you're left with. That's at that right. Point, the only truth is what comes out of the barrel of a gun or the scabbard right. of a sword. Or, yeah, absolutely, yes. absolutely. So it sounds, Tom, as though you're saying that the things that Gnostic gospels, like the Gospel of Judas, really can't deal with are the cross and resurrection. Yes, that's exactly right. And and the way that the Gospel of Judas deals with the cross is to say, well, Jesus was one of these sparks of light. Therefore, for him, death was to be welcomed because it would set the soul free or the spark of light free. Mm-hmm. And so in the Gospel of Judas, and it's a very interesting text in itself, Judas is the hero because he's the one who hands Jesus over to the authorities, which Jesus wants him to do, but it's, it's in effect a set-up suicide, right. um, that Jesus wants to be liberated. He says, you will sacrifice, you, Judas, will do what I want because you will sacrifice the man who clothes me, this human being who is the clothing, the, uh, the shabby, nasty outward clothing for the real me. You will let the, this me free. And in, in, in the meantime, this Jesus of this pseudo-gospel laughs at the other disciples because they haven't got it. They haven't right. got them. Yes, they're not on yes. the and accuses them of worshipping the wrong God. Of worshipping the wrong God. Um, which worshiping is the creator God. A lot of people would follow this person, <laughs> give their lives to following this person, if he were constantly saying to them, you're, worship, you're idolaters, you're blasphemers, well, which is pretty much what he accuses yes. them of in, in the Gospel of Judas. Yes, isn't it? It, it, is, it is rather. But then, of course, there are many religious teachers who come and say, you're worshipping the wrong gods and you need to turn around. And, of course, that's what Paul did in the ancient world. He went around and said, you've got a bunch of idols out there and you need to turn yes, and worship But they the only God. followed them if, if they had changed with the God that they were worshipping. Yes, they no, wouldn't I, carry I mean, on worshipping no, the old I, I, one I, and follow a teacher who was constantly castigating them doing it. That's right. Um, but I mean, what you've got there is not exactly consistency, but it's an attempt in the second century to make some sense of the Jesus traditions and some sense of the Jewish traditions mm-hmm. as well within a very dark world. I mean, that's, that's one of the other things that has to be said, that um, just as postmodernism encourages empire, paradoxically, because the postmodernist will sneer at empire, but he can't stop it. So empire creates conditions where people feel powerless. This is a dark world. We can do nothing to stop it. People will drop bombs. People will enslave other people. There's nothing we can do. What you can Well, escape. Why not escape? Here's a nice religion which enables you to forget all that nasty stuff. And, you see, I, I actually think that one of the impetus moments for the, the Gnosticism we find in texts like the one we're talking about came in the 130s AD, about 100 years after the time of Jesus, when the last great Jewish revolt of the period, by, led by Bar Kokhba, they really thought that Israel's God was going to do it this time, this time. defeat mm. the Romans, etc., etc. And when that didn't happen, then you can feel this sort of soul weariness set in. And they can't, the Jewish people at that point can't escape their traditions, Genesis, the Psalms, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, etc. But they say, maybe we've been reading them wrong. Maybe the God in these texts is actually the bad God. He shouldn't have made the world. Maybe Cain is the hero and Abel is the villain, etc., etc. And so the whole thing comes through upside down and distorted and bits of this and bits of that. And therefore and feeds into that whole Gnostic. Yeah, precisely, precisely, precisely. But also feeds into a very recognisable mood that that I think a lot of people now would... I mean, I think your phrase, soul weariness, 
is one that a lot of people would find very descriptive of how we feel mm-hmm. about the world, mm-hmm. the sense that actually you never can make any difference. Yeah, that, that's right. Nothing that's is right. ever going to change. Yeah. And, then, and so the best thing to do is to stick with a group of like-minded people yes, yes. Um, and keep out the plebs yes. and, and, that's right. and that's right. do and, and what look, we can and, to make look, our own lives comfortable. And look inwards. And it's very yeah. interesting that, that I was in a – I quoted in the book, I think, I was in a – uh, doing some lectures in Toronto and walked past a church. This was just when I was proofreading this book. And outside the church was a quote from Carl Jung saying, who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakens. An absolutely classic 20th century Gnosticism. Yeah. Yeah. If you look out, this world is just a thing of shadows and passing fancy. Look inside and you'll discover all sorts of wonderful mm. things. And that's the real... Well, of course, Jung and <coughs> some of the movements that came from him, like sure. Rudolf Steiner and all that, yeah. are kind yeah. of classic modern Gnostics. Uh, the classic modern Gnostics, exactly. Can, can yeah. I just ask a little bit about the his, historical mm. question, mm. though? Because you, you said um, earlier that, that people are thinking that these are saying that these are the real Gospels, and mm. this is where you really should turn if you want historical knowledge mm. of Jesus, whereas the, uh, the old canonical yes. Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are kind of secondary and have got it wrong. Mm. Um, what, what do you say when people say that? I mean, what, what, well, how do you address those um, sorts of questions? It's interesting. There is a, a, a noisy fad in America at the moment for saying that the Gnostic Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Thomas, go back very, very early, maybe to the 50s of the first century, and then that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. And have distorted it. <clears throat> and have yeah. distorted it and have brought in funny ideas from bits and pieces of Judaism which have corrupted the primitive message of Jesus and all that sort of thing. You have to take it case by case. There is no, you can't say all the Gnostic Gospels are thus or so because they're actually quite different from each oh. other. And the Gospel of Judas actually has a plot. It has a story which is sort of going along in the midst of some rather convoluted stuff, whereas the Gospel of Thomas doesn't. It's simply a collection of isolated sayings of Jesus. <clears throat> but uh, the, the, the first thing to say is that many of the documents, and Judas would be in this category, and several of the others found at Nag Hammadi in Egypt are also in this category, which bear all the marks of being second or third century writings. We don't have any reference to them any earlier than the late second century, and the worldview that they exhibit is one which starts to be discussed at the very earliest in the middle of the second century. And so that, uh, I don't actually think there's much question about that in relation to Judas and, and some of the others, like the Gospel of Philip and so on. Um, the, the, the key one is always going to be the Gospel of Thomas. Mm. And uh, there's a new book just on its way out as we speak by um, my former research assistant, Nick Perrin, mm. um, on, on Thomas, and he, uh, written at a popular level. And he's trying to sort of clear this up because he has demonstrated, and I think demonstrated is not too strong a word, that when you take the Gospel of Thomas as it stands, which is written in Coptic, which is an Egyptian language of the time, and when you translate it back into Syriac, um, then the, which is one of the possible original languages, then instead of it being a random collection of sayings where, you know, we've just got a rag bag and let's have another saying and let's have another saying, actually the sayings hook into one another. There are verbal links in Syriac between the different sayings which mean that it's like a sort of mnemonic. It helps people to remember them because <clears throat> this one ends with a phrase which then reminds you of the phrase which is at the beginning, rather like some of the stanzas in some of George Herbert's poetry mm-hmm. do, do the same kind of thing. <clears throat> and this, I think, is an absolute demonstration that the original 
Thomas was written in Syriac, but the Syriac in question goes with the Syriac of some of the early fathers who were writing precisely at the end of the second century. And in fact, apart from this very vocal minority of Thomas scholars in America who are very, very keen to say that Thomas is the first gospel for specifiable reasons to do with their desire to reconstruct this new myth of Christian origins, the great majority of Thomas scholars would say, yeah, it's second century, probably late second century. This isn't to say that there aren't some bits of genuine Jesus tradition preserved there. I mean, that would be only to be expected, that some sayings really do get through. But we can see again and again that you've got in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and even in John, a, a Jesus who is very historically credible as a Jew of the first third of the first century AD, a, a Palestinian Jew of that period. Whereas what you've got in the Gnostic Gospels is somebody who is really detached from Judaism, who uh, actually doesn't give much credence, if any, to the God of the Jews. A, example, in the Gospel of Thomas, the famous saying about render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's has got an extra leg. It goes to God the things that are God's and to me the things that are mine. Mm. Because for the worldview of Thomas, you've got Caesar, who is the one who just runs this present world. You've then got God, who is the God who made this world. But then Jesus is the one who reveals a higher level again. Now, you just cannot imagine that being said by a Palestinian Jew in roughly 30 AD. Likewise, going in the other direction, there's a lot in the canonical Gospels about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming here and now like this and so on. And the parables which reveal that belong within that turbulent world of the first third of the first century. In Thomas and the other Gnostic Gospels, those parables have been flattened out into a general teaching of sort of timeless wisdom, which is not about something that's actually happening in the world. The key thing to get hold of is this. The difference between the canonical Gospels and the Gnostic Gospels. The canonical Gospels are good news about something which is happening. The Gnostic Gospels are advice about ways in which you might reorder your private world. Mm. And there's all the difference in the world between news about something that's happening and advice about something that you could do to make yourself feel better or, or have a better spiritual future. And, of course, the very good news implies that the world is worth putting right. If God has come into it to do something about it, it implies that it has a value and a exactly, dignity and Exactly, that ultimately, and this is the great irony of the <coughs> contemporary fad for Gnosticism, it cuts the nerve of moral effort both in your own life and in the world at large. Whereas if you say Jesus has launched God's project of new creation by addressing the problem of evil which has corrupted and infected the good and beautiful world, and that by dealing with that evil and launching the new creation he has actually started a project which, by the spirit, we are called to take part in today. You've not only got a much better hope, i.e. resurrection to God's new heavens and new earth, you've got a much better reason for doing what you're called to do here and now in and for the world. I've got a couple more questions. We've got time. Yes, let's by all means go for it. Uh, one, one is the... Didn't the church try and suppress all this? Yes, I was going to ask that question. Yes, and it's wonderful how interested people are in these conspiracy theories. Um, (laughs) What what would the church get out of suppressing such? I think one of the key things is that the church realized that if it was going to go on saying Jesus is Lord and therefore Caesar isn't, not necessarily therefore we should start a revolt, but we appeal over the head of Caesar to the God who made the world and who will judge Caesar, mm. and therefore when there's a clash between God and Caesar, we're going to obey God, etc. The church saw that if you went with these Gnostic Gospels, you'd simply cut the nerve of that political imperative. And 
you can compare the attitude to political revolt in the Gnostic Gospels with, say, that of Polycarp or Irenaeus. In the 170s, um, many Christians in Lyon, including the original bishop there in southern France, were, were killed by the locals because they were preaching about resurrection, which was felt to be subversive. And so, <laughs> rightly. The, right, uh, rightly, <laughs> exactly. And so the, they, they were told, we're going to burn you to death and we're going to scatter your ashes into the river Rhone and then we'll see what will happen to your resurrection. Mm. And Irenaeus comes back from Rome where he's been visiting and is made bishop and goes on teaching about the goodness of the creator God and the sure promise of resurrection, um, knowing this to be subversive. So I think the early church said we cannot have these things because they're cutting the nerve, ironically, precisely of our social, political, cultural witness. And ultimately, ultimately it's to do with hanging on quite literally for dear life to the goodness of the creator God, as in Genesis, as in the Psalms, as in Isaiah, and so on. And you see, one of the main reasons that the early Christians clung on to the Old Testament was not as a way of saying, we're right and the Jews are wrong. I mean, that's a different battle. It's a way of saying, here and only here, we have the sheet anchor of a worldview which says we are living in a good world that has been spoiled but is being redeemed. And so these Gospels were were sliding away from that into this Hellenistic Greek dualism. And they said, you just can't go there. So it wasn't a political power ploy um, to, to, oh, let's suppress these wicked things and then we will be safe. It was, let's get that nonsense out of our hair so that we can get on with the real challenging and dangerous task. And one of the very interesting things then that you've just said, Tom, is that at that point, at least the church wasn't a sort of massive, powerful institution that could go around suppressing things. Well, of course, of course. <laughs> um, And I'm not sure that it, yeah, yeah. That it is now either. No, I mean, no, no, exactly. People have this idea that because it ended up with the Constantinian settlement, therefore it really was all like that, so that when you look at the second century and say so-and-so is Bishop of Rome, you imagine him sitting there in the Vatican yeah. throned with cardinals and Swiss guards and all the rest of it, <laughs> and it ain't necessarily so. In fact, it wasn't at all so. Um, the church in many places was very small, very believed, um, just a tiny little uh, sometimes when I'm taking a service in a little parish in County Durham and, um, when, when, I, when I look out and I, I see a small handful of people and I think um, you know, who are these people, what's going on I think this is exactly how it was in the second yeah. century 15 here, 20 there um, not, as Paul says, not the world's powerful and rich and well to do these little people who have nevertheless realised that Jesus is Lord and that that vision gives us a window on the whole new creation mm. And one other yes, little, little question. <laughs> uh, um, people often say, well, you know, the suppression of these books was not only about protecting power and privilege in, mm. of, the, of mm. the church, but also um, protecting patriarchy. Uh, that these are mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Gospels in which Mary Magdalene has a much bigger role than she does in the yeah. other uh, canonical Gospels, and that the Church has suppressed that so yeah. it can carry yeah. on yeah. in its yeah. nasty patriarchal ways. People usually only say that if they haven't actually read the things. But there is yes. that. <laughs> that that's, that's absolutely true. And if instead they've read the Da Vinci Code, which, yes, which implies <laughs> that this is all about the sacred feminine. Well, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a good short answer to that, which is that if you read the resurrection narratives, you'll find in each of the canonical Gospels... Mary Magdalene has this remarkable role to play, and in John particularly, as the primary witness to the resurrection. 
And that is so counterintuitive in terms of the way people looked at the world in the first two centuries. Have a woman, and a woman with whatever track record she had, but it certainly wasn't particularly um, happy one, uh, as, as your primary witness to this great event. And already by the middle of the second century, people were making um, all kinds of fun of that. Oh, you've just got this base, testimony based on a hysterical woman. You know? So, But the early church stuck to its guns. No, Mary Magdalene really was the beginning of the witness to the new creation. And to make Mary, as in the Da Vinci Code, Jesus' girlfriend, or even his wife, you know, his, his bitter fluff on the side, is precisely to reduce her to the romantic 19th and 20th Absolutely. century vision of the good little woman who bears the, the great man's child. You know, Quite the and, opposite and of the, the kind exa- of exa- Precisely the, di- the diminution of the role back to the safe, domesticated one instead of this wild, powerful thing of a woman who is now the, the, the apostle to the apostles. And, of course, you get whichever one of the Gnostic Gospels it is that says... Oh, Mary will be saved if she makes herself male. That's the last saying in the Gospel of Thomas. Mary will be saved if she makes herself male because every female, female who makes herself male is fit for the kingdom of God. And instead, in Paul, you've got, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, free no male and female. For all, you're all one in Christ Jesus. And that is, that is where you've got to go to look at the genuine re-inhabiting of the goodness of the male-female complementarity. And it's the complementarity of the different parts of God's good world which is absolutely at the heart of a creation theology and which Gnosticism can't stand. That's why heaven and earth pull apart in Gnosticism, whereas in Christianity they come together. And it's why male and female pull apart in contemporary Gnosticism and contemporary society, whereas in a creational theology they go together. You know, the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. This is the marriage of heaven and earth uh, uh, like a male-female union. And that has all kinds of resonances in contemporary society. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, just to say, we've been talking about Bishop Tom Wright's new book called Judas and the Gospel of Jesus, published by SPCK. Um, and do stick with us, because we hope in the next God Pod, Tom is going to ask us some other questions. But for the meantime, thank you very much for being thank with you. us, Tom. You're thank you, Mike. Welcome. It's a pleasure. That was God Pod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.